This week on Business Brief, we assess where Missouri banks stand in the aftermath of two of the largest bank failures in U.S. history. Then, we'll hear from a St. Louis policy director about what it takes to make equitable decisions. Welcome to Business Brief, Missouri Business Alert's podcast focused on the business news and issues shaping the state. My name is Siggy Reese, and I'm joined by my co-host, Teddy Mayorka. Teddy, how are you doing this week? Siggy, I am doing well. It's good to be back here on Business Brief, although we will be taking a quick hiatus just for a week, uh, but we will be taking a rest next week from our our regularly scheduled programming, which I I am looking forward to, I have to admit. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'm going to see uh, Taylor Swift in Dallas, so super excited, but hopefully no big business news happens when we're gone for real and uh, enjoy your your Taylor Swift. She might be making her way in back into the business headlines. She's been featured on the show before, so who's to say it can't happen again? Yeah, you never know. Well, are you ready to jump into this week's headlines? Yes, I am. Let's do it. The Federal Reserve Bank raised interest rates by a quarter of a point Wednesday, continuing the central bank's extended fight against inflation. However, the era of increased rate hikes could end soon, according to language tweaks in the bank's policy statement. The interest rate increase comes amid stress for the banking system following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank earlier this month. The Missouri Supreme Court on Tuesday upheld a state law that prohibits counties from regulating industrial hog facilities. The ruling upholds a Cole County Circuit Court judge's decision and means concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs, cannot face stricter local regulations than those that exist at the state level. CAFOs have met resistance in rural communities, with some of the facilities facing allegations of improper management that has led to harm to people and wildlife. The Missouri House gave first-round approval to a significant tax cut bill on Tuesday. The bill would cut $1 billion in personal and corporate income taxes. It would cut the top rate on personal income taxes and cut the corporate income tax rate in half. Social Security payments would also become tax-exempt. The bill would create the second corporate tax cut in less than five years. St. Louis Mayor Shara Jones warned Missouri residents this week about the potential financial impact of a state takeover of the St. Louis Police Department. She argued the takeover would cost Missouri hundreds of millions of dollars, resulting in an increase in taxation. If the takeover occurs, city staffers who object to the transition would face daily $1,000 fines. Are you ready to be inspired? Since 2013, That's What She Said has provided a platform for women's inspirational voices, strengthening communities across the country. On Saturday, April 15th at 7 p.m. at the Missouri Theater, the inaugural That's What She Said Columbia, presented by Accounting Plus, will feature the powerful stories of women from our community. 25% of the ticket sales will support True North of Columbia. Find us at facebook.com slash she said Como and purchase your tickets now for an event you're sure to remember long after the curtain closes. Hi, this is Fred Perry, host of the CEO Roundtable. Join Mid-Missouri's most successful businesses on Wednesday, May 3rd, as we gather for the Show Me LeaderCast event in Columbia at Woodcrest Auditorium. This annual tradition brings together the world's leading authorities on leadership for a simulcast event with lots of local fun, education, and entertainment. This year, we'll hear from Dr. Andy Stanley, Dr. Henry Cloud, plus six other great speakers. General admission and group ticket pricing is now available at showmeleadercast.com.
For our next story, we turn our focus back to the banking sector. It's been a tumultuous couple of weeks for financial institutions, and Missouri Business Alert reporter Thomas Gleason has been tracking the story. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get into some of your latest reporting on the banks here in Missouri, let's do a quick reset on the big picture. Sure. Two weeks ago, California's Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, and the federal regulators took it over. Two days later, New York's Signature Bank failed and was taken over. Those were the second and third largest bank collapses in U.S. history. In their aftermath, federal officials took the extraordinary step of guaranteeing all deposits in both those banks in an effort to stabilize the banking system. Okay, gotcha. And you've been talking to lots of people here in Missouri to get the local perspective of the story. So what have you heard? Well, at a high level, the experts I talked to said the typical Missouri bank is less vulnerable than SVB to some of the factors that drove its collapse. So what about Missouri banks make them less susceptible? Well, John Howe, a professor emeritus of finance at the University of Missouri, said Silicon Valley Bank was unique in terms of its assets and depositors. So nearly all of SVB's deposits, about 94% in total, were uninsured. That means they exceeded the $250,000, which is how much the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation will guarantee. Okay. And so for comparison, what percent of deposits at typical Missouri banks are uninsured? We do not have an exact way to gauge that, but 87% of banks in Missouri have less than $1 billion in assets. Now, banks that size typically have a smaller percentage of uninsured deposits than larger banks do, according to Kirk Bryden, who runs a financial data firm in St. Louis. So the typical Missouri bank has a much smaller percentage of uninsured deposits, but why is that important? Well, the experts gave me two reasons. For one, if relatively few depositors put large sums in one bank, that bank is more vulnerable to a collapse. And the higher percentage of uninsured depositors a bank has, the more likely it is that those depositors are going to be skittish if they hear bad news and ask for their money back. Makes sense. But in your story, you also reported on a difference in investments. Can you explain that? Yeah. So my sources told me the typical bank with assets under $1 billion invests a much lower percentage of its capital in long-term investments than an institution like Silicon Valley Bank does. Now that's important because a long-term investment will lose more value than a short-term investment when interest rates go up. And that happened with Silicon Valley Bank. So the Federal Reserve Bank has been making a series of interest rate hikes over the past year, and that erased billions in market value on SVB's long-term investments. But SVB would only lose money if it sold those investments. So why did they? That's a good point. Jeff Jones, a professor of finance and risk management at Missouri State University, told me Silicon Valley Bank's depositors began pulling their money. Now, that forced the bank to sell the investments at a loss. At some point, the numbers just didn't add up. Okay, I see. So are Missouri banks any less vulnerable? Well, my sources tell me banks with total assets less than a billion dollars, which is most Missouri banks, tend to have a higher percentage of liquid assets than bigger banks. They also have a lot of certificates of deposit that are harder for depositors to cash in right away, making their deposit base more secure for them. Got it. So what's next? Well, on Tuesday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that the government's reach in protecting uninsured deposits could extend to smaller banks if necessary to limit contagion of bank runs. But there is a hope that it does not come to that. Well, that's surely something to keep an eye on. Thanks so much for talking with me today. You're welcome.
next story, we'll dig into what it takes to make equitable decisions. Interesting. And what does that process look like? Making equitable decisions begins with strong data and leadership. That's according to Christina Garmendia, who is the policy director to the president of the St. Louis Board of Aldermen. Garmendia previously owned a consulting firm where she advised nonprofits and foundation on leadership, accountability, and the effective use of data to inform decision-making. Got it. And what's the impact of making equitable decisions? So Garmendia says the process allows leaders to better understand what they do not already know and stay on track with goals. Missouri Business Alert reporter Skylar Rossi spoke to Garmendia about the process and outcomes of equitable decision-making. Here's part of their conversation. Christina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Skylar. What types of decisions are the most important for organizations and entities to be focusing on when we're thinking about equity? So equitable decision-making, one of the common mistakes, I guess, people make when doing equity research or, you know, talking about equity is that they don't talk about decisions that they're making that are important, that are relevant. And so a big one that everyone makes is, or foundations, is the allocation of resources, how you're spending your budget, hiring decisions are a common area, and even what are, what's the prioritization of the work that you do as an organization. So if you're a health-based organization, how do you make decisions about your specialties? Um, So all of, there's a many, many decisions we make um, as in organizations that um, have profound impacts on what the types of work we do in the world and who's involved in it. So can you walk us through what it takes to come to an equitable decision? What factors should entities be considering? One way that we've used the equity indicators at the city is is using it to prioritize what uh, departments work on or initiatives of the president's office as well. So where we have the largest inequities, that's a way to prioritize what you're doing. Uh, you can look at what are the inequities that impact the most number of people. That's another way of uh, you know choosing a top priority. How do you think through data collection and how do you make sure that the data you are collecting is equitable? Instead of thinking of what data is easy to collect, it's thinking about what data will actually help you make a decision. Um, and that's really the, that's the really the key thing. And um, and thinking too about you know the process of data collection, because if you're collecting data in uh, poorly, not systematically, um, then it's it's going to be hard to use it. It's going to be hard to analyze it. It's going to be hard to really know what it means. Um, I know with Urban Rx, you worked with nonprofits and other groups. Um, and now you're working on the public side of the city of St. Louis. Um, how does the work compare in the public and the private sectors when you're thinking through equitable decision making? You know, the city of St. Louis has a billion dollar budget that provides all these services to the city residents. There, I think there are similar, there's definitely similarities in that every organization has limited resources. On the public side, you're, you have a kind of wider scope of addressing social needs, uh, but private companies, um, you know, they'll have a narrower focus. So when it comes, and a lot of them are focused on making money. <laughs> so, um, so there are some differences um, in terms of, you know, every or, every organization, every business has a role to play in supporting equity um, in achieving that vision, um, whether it's through the actual work you do um, versus 
and how you do the work. Um, how can making equitable decisions help improve business or organization outcomes? It's really finding your blind spots um, as an organization and being looking at taking an experimental approach too. So the whole goal of it, creating performance indicators of any kind is to make sure you're on the right track um, and that you're not, you know, uh, that something's happening because you're just not paying attention to it. Um, so, you know, just like any other performance indicator, kind of equity performance indicators help you um, minimize blind spots in your operations. It helps you uh, creatively assess problems um, as well um, and makes you more resilient to changes, um, you know, because our society is changing all the time. Um, you know, I would say like there's a ton of businesses that aren't ready for the Hispanic wave, <laughs> about to become the largest minority group in the country. And, um, you know, there's a lot of companies, especially in the St. Louis region, where we don't have a ton of Hispanics, right, that aren't ready because they haven't thought of it in that, uh, from that perspective. Um, and what would make them competitive um, with a group that they might not be as familiar with. Thank you so much, Christina. Watch the full interview at MissouriBusinessAlert.com. It is now time for us to get into our words of the week. Teddy, what's your word this week? Siggy, this week my word is forever chemicals. That doesn't sound great. What does it mean? Forever chemicals is a common way to refer to a group of human-made compounds that can linger in the environment and human bodies for long periods of time without degrading. They come from a variety of different human products, such as food packaging and nonstick cookware. People are often exposed to forever chemicals through food, contact with specific products, dust, and tap water. Okay, so why are these forever chemicals in the news? Well, the Environmental Protection Agency issued a proposal this week that may create stricter limits on forever chemicals in our drinking water. If the EPA institutes these limits, Missouri would have to create regulations on these chemicals in drinking water. The state doesn't currently have any regulations in place. Got it. And why does the EPA care about regulating these chemicals? Scientists believe the chemicals are linked to various health problems, like high cholesterol, certain cancers, and digestive inflammation. So the EPA wants to try and lower the possibilities of people getting sick from their drinking water. That's all I've got this week. What's your word, Siggy? My word this week is libraries. Okay, and why are we talking about those? So the Missouri House Budget Committee Chairman Cody Smith revised Governor Mike Parson's proposed spending plan, cutting over $2 billion in general revenue from the over $50 billion budget plan. One of the items on the funding chopping block could be libraries. Interesting. And why is that? The Missouri Library Association, the Missouri Association of School Libraries, and the American Civil Liberties Union have teamed up in a lawsuit against a state law that limits materials allowed in school libraries. So Smith aims to cut this funding as a reaction to the suit. Got it. And what else is potentially being cut? The committee's revisions also slashed nearly $900 million meant for I-70 renovations and $250 million intended for an education reserve fund. For a closing thought, here's Christina Garmendia again on how people can get involved connecting research to decision-making. There's, there's many, many paths to this kind of work. 
I don't think there's a, there's not a pipeline yet, but I think the core piece is curiosity and also independence, right? It's not being afraid, even though no one's hiring for you to do X job to do it anyways, um, and be really driven by your passions and interests and curiosity, um, because anyone can do research. You don't have to have, you don't have to work for a university. Um, you don't even have to have a client. <laughs> Um, there's data everywhere. Well, that is all for this week. Thank you to the M33 Project for providing music for this episode. For my co-hosts, Teddy Mallorca, editors Emma Boyle, Elena Fu, Nick Knoll, Skylar Rossi, and Michael Stacy, I'm Siggy Reese, and this has been Business Brief. Business Brief.